Well, why don't we turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8 this morning. As you turn there, let me uh, just give you a, a word of encouragement, a little pastoral love tap, if you will. Um, if ever you needed to have a Bible open as we work through a passage of Scripture together, it's going to be in Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, just to, to put it as frankly and as simply as I possibly can, if you're not looking at a copy of Scripture as we move through the passage together, you are going to get lost. That's just the way that Romans works. It's tightly argued, highly logical, very theological and doctrinal, and we don't make any apologies or excuses for that. Actually, we find that good gospel doctrines are life. And the things that Paul is going to be discussing and arguing in Romans 8 are the kinds of things that get you up out of bed in the morning, that enable you to live a life of comfort and assurance and hope in Christ. These are the kinds of gospel doctrines that take you deeper into a relationship with Jesus rather than leaving your head filled with useless information. So let me encourage you to open your Bible or a pew Bible in the, the seat in front of you or even to download an app on your smartphone, but you're going to want to have Romans open before you as we work through the passage together. So having said that, why don't we read the first four verses of Romans chapter 8, uh, the passage that Kendall read for us earlier. Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that as we've sung together that You so love the world that You gave Your only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And as we come before You this morning with our Bibles open, it's our prayer that You would take each of us deeper into that reality. That You would help those of us who have been believing in Jesus for a long time to find the riches of the Gospel sufficient for our daily life. We pray for those of us here this morning who might be questioning what the claims of Christianity are. We pray that they would leave with clarity about the Gospel. And that as usual, but not um, mundanely, we, we do pray that You would take Your Word, cause it to live and grow in us, to transform us into the image of Jesus rather than to simply fill us with knowledge. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Why no condemnation for these crimes. That's the subject line of an email written to the editors of a Staten Island, New York newspaper 
just this past week. Why no condemnation for these crimes? I'm not sure that the man who wrote this letter understood the weightiness and eternal significance of that line of questioning. He, of course, was discussing what he felt to be a series of unjust actions by a foreign government, his anger directed directly at the newspaper for not covering and condemning such actions. Why no condemnation for these crimes? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Part of being human and having an understanding of right and wrong is to have this longing in the face of injustice and wrongdoing for condemnation, for justice to be served. Why no condemnation for these crimes? And yet, the Gospel message pronounces that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And a moment of honest reflection, honesty with ourselves and with our family and our neighbors, forces us to admit that we understand somewhere deep down inside of us that we stand guilty before the holiness of God. And so the question remains, why no condemnation for my crimes? That's the question that we want to ask of Romans 8 this morning. Why no condemnation for my crimes? And as we turn here to this passage of Scripture, we find the answer that Paul gives. He tells us that since Jesus stood condemned in the place of His people. We are no longer condemned or enslaved by sin. Since Jesus stood condemned in the place of His people, we are no longer condemned or enslaved by sin. Why no condemnation? Because as the hymn writer said, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now, as we jump into Romans 8, we are quite literally jumping into the middle of the most tightly argued and majestic theological writing ever penned. But I, I wonder if you would ever realize that Paul writes Romans to set this in context as a missionary support letter. Oh, that we would be a church like the church in Rome. That our missionary support letters would read like the letter to the Romans. Chapter 1, verse 7, or rather 14 and 15, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's my great desire to be there with you and to preach the Gospel to you. Chapter 15, verses 24 and 25, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I want you to support me on my way to Spain, Paul says. 
And in the middle of this great desire to preach the Gospel in Rome and then to be sent on from Rome to Spain to continue preaching Christ and Him crucified, Paul lays out in fullest measure his understanding of the Gospel so that the Roman church would add their amen and support him on his way. Chapters 1-4, to Paul argues that every human person, Jew and Gentile alike, stands guilty and condemned before the holiness of God. The Gentile world stands condemned before the holiness of God because what is plainly revealed about God in creation, Paul says, is suppressed in unrighteousness and unbelief. The Jewish world condemned in the face of God's law because what is explicitly revealed about the Lord and His demands upon His people is rejected and disobeyed. So in Romans 3 and 4, Paul toys with this question. He thinks to himself, if this is true, if everyone stands condemned, how could anyone ever be made right? And his conclusion is, I have to be made right with God on the strength of someone else. Therefore, Jesus has to be my righteousness and my acceptance before God because on my own, it's impossible. Brings forth Abraham as the father of both Jew and Gentile, the father of the faith who was made right before God before he ever obeyed a command. Chapters 5 to 8, Paul then argues about what it looks like to live life by grace. Chapter 5, we've been brought into a new hope where even our sufferings and our trials are for our good in Christ. Chapter 6, he addresses the issue of law and gospel, saying that just because we've received grace does not remove our responsibility to obey. Romans 6.1, may we continue in sin that grace may abound. He says, God forbid. But on the other hand, in chapter 7, he addresses the thinking of some of the Jews of his day. that We might be made right with God on the basis of our own obedience. He says, do you not know the very moment that you encounter the law of God, sin is at work in you to stir up your disobedience so that he could say in verse 10, the very command that promised life became death to me. So at the end of Romans 7, in exasperation and despair, Paul cries out, wretched man that I am. Who? will deliver me from this body of death? Is there someone who can save me? And then Romans 8.1 hits like a Mack truck. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh yes, Paul says, there is someone who might save you from your body of death. His name is Christ Jesus. All of that by way of introduction should show you just how excited I am about Romans 8. I have two questions that I want to ask of the passage this morning and, and try and answer them as clearly and as plainly as possible. And the first question that I want to ask is, what is condemnation? If there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, what is this condemnation that we have been 
delivered from. Now, the best way to understand what Paul means by condemnation here is to contrast it with its opposite. Earlier in chapter 5, if you have a Bible open, you may want to turn there, verse 16, Paul is talking about what life looks like when you or I are in Adam, apart from Christ, and what it looks like when you and I are in Christ, now being represented by Him. Chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam's, leaves us condemned and enslaved by sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. On the one hand, we have condemnation. On the next, justification. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Justification and condemnation. Now, to be justified is not simply to have our sins forgiven. To be justified is far more dynamic, far more beautiful, and far more life-giving than that. To be justified biblically is to have God declare you righteous. And the only way that God can declare an unrighteous person as righteous is if all of the perfect obedience of Jesus is credited to your account and all of your sin and unworthiness and condemnation is credited to Christ. Therefore, the cross. On the cross as Jesus died, my sins were not simply forgiven. That gets me to zero. On the cross, Jesus' perfect obedience was given to me so that now I have an abundance of perfection and righteousness seen by God the Father as being in the Son, perfectly obedient, pleased, delighted in because of Christ. The opposite, of course, is condemnation. Where God continues to see us apart from Christ in our sin and worthy of judgment, that judgment being supremely death. That is condemnation. Eternal death and separation from God. But Paul says, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question remains, doesn't it? Why no condemnation for these crimes? Now loved ones, you will not be able to wake up with joy or lie down with hope if you do not grasp seriously why. It's not enough simply to know that I stand uncondemned in Christ. We have to know why or else we forfeit our hope. Why then no condemnation for these crimes? I want to suggest to you three things from the text as we move somewhat quickly. Number one, no condemnation for my crimes, number one, because we are united with Christ. Look at verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for whom? For those who are in 
Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. How do you frame out your Christian experience? How do you discuss with your friends or your family what it means to be a Christian? I imagine some of us use uh, descriptions like, I've decided for Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I'm trusting Christ, I've been converted, I've become a follower of Jesus, etc. But Paul's favorite explanation of what it means to be a Christian is to say simply that the Christian is a man or a woman who is in Christ. In Christ. United with Jesus. So bound up with Christ that it's difficult to even understand where one begins and the other ends. Experientially, as a believer, you are in Christ. I absolutely hate flying. Those of you who know me best will know that my palms sweat even discussing heights. I'm so terrified of them. But I, I do fly on occasion. And, and you know when you, you, you get your ticket, and you, you go through the whole thing, you take off your shoes, you wait in line, you do the whole song and dance. Finally, you get on the plane, you get in the plane. And suddenly, the, the, the way that people talk is, is, is very bizarre. Because the stewardess will come and say, we are... We are getting ready for takeoff. We are experiencing turbulence. We are preparing for our descent. We. Because while I'm in that plane, everything that the plane does, I do. I move with the plane. I take off with the plane. I land with the plane. I'm in the plane. The plane's experience is mine. Do you realize that to be in Christ means that when I have believed in Jesus, everything that He has done, everything that He has accomplished, it is as if I am clothed with Christ and I have accomplished as well. So that when Jesus lives a perfect and sinless life, if I am in Christ, I have lived a perfect and sinless life. When Jesus dies His death to sin, I clothed with Christ, die a death to sin. When Jesus raises victoriously from the dead, I in Christ raise victoriously from the dead. All of my Christian experience is bound up in who Jesus is and what He has done. Now this is why this doctrine is so important to you. The next moment when you feel suddenly condemned, overwhelmed with your sin. The world will tell you that your, your biggest need is to forgive yourself. But the Gospel says your greatest need is to understand that God has already forgiven you. That there is not an ounce of condemnation reserved for you. Jesus has taken it all. And here's the most important thing. Listen to this. God could no more condemn you if you are in Christ than He could condemn Jesus again. You are in Christ. The sentence has already been paid. Why no condemnation for these crimes? Because I am in Christ. Secondly, our freedom has been secured. There is more than one way, I think, to, quote, misunderstand grace. 
And one of the greatest misunderstandings of grace in gospel-centered circles is that grace somehow now swallows up our responsibility to obey. But Paul has already said in Romans 6, verse 1, may we continue in sin that grace may abound. He says, God forbid, may it never be. In Romans 7, verse 6, he tells us that we've been brought into this new reality and says that now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here he says we're no longer condemned because we no longer live under the power and the dominion and the authority of sin and death. Look at what he says in verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Using that word namas or law figuratively as a rule or a principle or authority. And he says, formerly, before you were in Christ, you lived as a captive to the rule, authority, and principle of sin and of death. But when Jesus died upon the cross for your sins, He purchased for you the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, who sets you free in Christ Jesus from the rule of sin and death. You now have, Paul says, a new Master. The hymn writer says, uh, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart went free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. There is freedom and liberty in Christ for those who are dwelled by the Holy Spirit. My fear is that many of us have not come to real grips with the reality that because the Gospel is true, if you believe in Christ, into Christ, you no longer have to sin. You no longer have to. Prior to Christ, your will was bound. You did what was displeasing to God. Even on your best day, even when you obeyed, you obeyed from wrong motives. But here Paul says you've been set free. Loved ones, you do not have to go back to that pornography. You do not have to any longer be enslaved to gossip. You do not any longer have to submit to a self-righteous, judgmental attitude. You've been set free. You have the choice not to sin. That doesn't mean that we don't sin, but it means we don't have to. I love the story of Louis Zamperini. He's one of the most famous uh, uh, American soldiers from World War II. His biography is uh, the book and the movie Unbroken. And his biographer, Laura Hildenbrand, tells the story of when he and his friends first found out that the war had ended. They were brought out by the Japanese commander. They were told the war had ended. They were given the opportunity to bathe in the river nearby, and an American plane began to fly above them. Laura says this, in seconds, masses of naked men were stampeding out of the river and up the hill. As the plane turned loops above, the pilot waving, the POWs swarmed into the compound out of their minds with relief and rapture. Their fear of the guards, of the massacre they had so long awaited was gone. 
dispersed by the roar and muscle of the bomber. The prisoners jumped up and down, shouted and sobbed. Some scrambled onto the camp roofs, waving their arms and singing out for their joy to the pilot above. Others piled against the camp fence and sent it crashing over. Someone found matches, and soon the entire length of fence was burning. The Japanese shrank back and withdrew, and in the midst of the running, celebrating men, Louis stood on wavering legs, emaciated, sick, and dripping wet. And in his tired mind, two words were repeating themselves over and over, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. See, the declaration that the war was over not only meant that the Japanese didn't have any authority to kill them, it meant that the Japanese had no authority over them at all. I'm free. And it would have been a twisted man who would have walked immediately back into the prison camp and subjected himself again to chains. I'm free. The good news of the Gospel isn't simply that we are delivered from the punishment of sin. The good news of the Gospel is that we're delivered from sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. To no longer submit to slavery to sin, but to delight in righteousness. No condemnation, because we have been set free. Thirdly, finally, again, very quickly, our sin has been condemned. Our sin has already been condemned. Look at verse 3. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, to the end that, with the purpose that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Our sin has been condemned. Another way to misunderstand the grace of God in Christ is to believe that God is simply a good Father who rewards those who do their best. There are many of us within earshot of me even this morning who are attempting on a daily basis to live in right relationship to God by what I do. Somewhere along the line, you have bought into the lie that Christianity, when boiled down to its essence, is morality. But the essence of God's will for your life is that you would obey His law. And so... Day in and day out, you slavishly attempt with repeated failure to do something with the law that God never intended to be done. Paul says, God has done what the law cannot do because it's weakened by the flesh. There is something about our sinful natures that when we tell a child not to jump, the first thing he wants to do is jump. Even if he doesn't actually jump, he tells you in his heart that he wishes he could jump. That's how rebellion works. The moment we're confronted with law, sin stirs up and we disobey. The moment the law says do not commit adultery, we find ourselves giving way to lust. The moment that the law tells us not to covet, we immediately place our eyes on our neighbor's possessions. That's how sin and the law work. But Paul says that God never intended for the law as it's weakened by the flesh to make us right with God. Rather, His desire was that because of the law, you and I would see how needy we are of Jesus. That we would be convicted of our sin and the just condemnation that we're under. And so, 
God sends His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sin offering. And He condemns sin in the flesh. Tony Morita shares the story of Martin Luther who once had a nightmare where the evil one came with a list of all of his sins. He opened the scroll in front of Luther and said, is this true? Itemized accounts all that Luther had done wrong. And Luther said, oh yes. Yes, that's absolutely true. I'm guilty of all of it. But across all of it, the blood of Jesus says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Luther goes on to explain that the law is like a man who desires to be made healthy by drinking wine. Luther says that a doctor might condemn his foolish trust in the wine, not because there's a problem with the wine, but because he needs something other than the wine to make him whole so that then he might drink wine with enjoyment. Some of us use the law like Luther's illustration uses wine. We try our darndest to be accepted by what we do, foolishly placing our trust in something that can't save when Jesus stands ready to save so that you and I might now walk in obedience and newness of life. Why no condemnation for these crimes? The most important question that you or I could ever ask. And the answer that Paul gives is because if I have trusted Jesus, I am in Christ. I've been set free. My sin has already been condemned. And the reason that this is so vital to just living a normal life of Christian hope is that if I don't understand what it means to be in Christ, I will live in a constant fear that having made a good start of it, now somehow I could be lost. If I don't understand what it means to be set free from the bondage and power of sin, I will constantly wallow in pathetic and half-hearted obedience. And if I don't understand that Christ in His body has had sin condemned on my behalf. I will live in a constant fear of impending judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why no condemnation? Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood do you believe this message i'm talking to you believer do you believe this message because if you do you have to reckon with the question whose righteousness today whose righteousness my own meager Two steps forward, one step back. Sad attempts at obeying the law. Or Jesus perfect, whole, absolute obedience to the law from the heart 
even in the minutiae, credit it all to me. My present possession in Christ. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the prize through Christ my own. You will only ever do that when you're serious about the doctrine of the gospel and how it relates to your daily life. No more fear. Tony Morita says, this passage is true today, it'll be true tomorrow, and when you die, you'll see just how true this is. No fear. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me and I in Him. Let's pray. Father, we come before You truthfully in awe that these things could even be true. That we could be found in Christ, clothed with Jesus, having a righteousness that's not our own, Confessing that when Jesus lived, I lived. When Jesus died, I died. When Jesus rose, I rose. So there's no condemnation. Understanding at a profound level that sin no longer has the ability to kill us, nor does it have the ability to enslave us. And so we rely by grace on your Holy Spirit to break the chains of bondage that so many of us feel like we experience in our daily lives. We come in awe that in my place condemned He stood, that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was sent to be condemned so that we might be made new. Father, there's no other hope than this. There's no other message like this. There's no other righteousness like this. And so we pray that You would cause us to take this deep into our hearts to rest assured of our security in Christ from no condemnation to no separation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.